Isaiah 12. Tonight we look at three more chapters in Isaiah, doing summary of each, concentrating on certain key verses. Tonight's message, the fall of Babylon and of Satan. Now, in the midst of all these thunderbolts of warnings and threatenings of punishment for Israel and other nations, chapter 12 is, is a song of praise, kind of like a psalm. I wonder why it's not included amongst 150 psalms. Psalms were meant to be sung. Israel would sing this. Perhaps Isaiah did. Wonder what that prop, you ever wonder what people in the Bible sounded like when they sang? David. Jesus. Mike, how do we know Jesus sang? The Bible says so. When they finished the Lord's Supper, it says they went out and sang a psalm. Being an observant Jew, of course, he'd regularly sing in the synagogue. Oh, I'd love to have heard Jesus sing. There's a verse in Revelation that implies that Jesus will lead the heavenly choir in singing. Mm, that's going to be good. Anyway, notice that this is a psalm. It's a kind of future. In that day you will say, and not just saying, but singing this. It's a song of praise. Oh Lord, I will praise you. Though you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Sounds like somebody's been spanked. You were angry, but now you comfort. Of course, that's what parents should do. They should inflict some kind of appropriate punishment and reaffirm their love and comfort. And so they're thanking God for salvation from the enemies that God has promised. God, God said, I'm going to chasten you, but I'm going to punish them and deliver you. We should thank God for salvation and sing joyfully and thankfully. So here they um, have learned their lesson. They've been chastened. They're repenting and they're being restored. And one day, Israel will be greatly restored. Romans 11, many, most Jews will turn to the Lord. Call your attention to something in the next two verses. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He has also become my salvation. Verse 3, before with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Notice the word salvation three times. That means deliverance, rescue from danger. They had been saved from the danger of their enemies, the other nations, but we look at it in a higher level. Greatest salvation is from sin and from hell. Let's remember to thank God for that. And it's given God the praise. It doesn't say, you know, I, I was looking for God and I got it and I'm a good person though. Jonah learned this lesson in the belly of the whale and said, salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2.10. And then it says here, with joy you'll draw waters from the wells of salvation. That's implied in John 4 and 7 and Revelation 22. Jesus said, I will give living water. And John 7 says, that's the Holy Spirit. And then Revelation 22, come and drink freely from the water of life. And then in verse 4, uh, four again, prayer and praise, but I'll call your attention to something. Praise the Lord, call upon his name. In other words, you're speaking to God. And then the last part, make mention of his name 
that his name is exalted. That's speaking to people. We need to pray, speak to God, and then speak to people. Now go back to verse 2. It says, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. Now, Yah, he's not talking about the German word for yes, like Yahweh, which means yes indeed. No, this is Hebrew. And if I was a class, if this was a class, I'd ask you, what, what, what does this mean? This is an abbreviation for the Hebrew name for God, which in Hebrew is pronounced Yahweh. You can see this is a diminutive. It's a shortened form of it. Um, like instead of William, it'd be like Will. And uh, sometimes the holy name is rendered Jehovah. Not just the Jehovah's Witnesses, but it's in the Bible, and some churches still use that. But this is one of only a few places in the Hebrew Bible where it's shortened like that. For Yah, and Yahweh is taken from when God identified his name to Moses in the burning bush and said, I am that I am. And he said, tell him I am sent you. That phrase is a play on the Hebrew word for to be. And so this is shortened. Yahweh would be I am who I am. Yah would simply be I am. He is the one that exists. Okay, there's a brief summary of chapter 12. Now we'll quickly go through chapter 13. A series of warnings again to the other nations that had attacked Israel. Top of the list is Babylon. Now actually, Babylon is the city that's the capital of Babylonia, the northern region of Mesopotamia. No, the southern region of Mesopotamia. They conquered the northern region, which is called Assyria. You say, well, which is which, Babylon or Babylonia? Babylon is the city, Babylonia is the country, but it's usually mentioned Babylon because it's by far the biggest city there. It's like, anybody remember an old song Frank Sinatra had? New York, New York. They don't say New York City there. They'll say New York, New York, biggest city in the state of New York. So this is addressed to Babylon and all Babylonian um, Babylonians that had conquered Israel. And we know from here in the book of Chronicles and elsewhere, God used Babylon to chasten Israel. Now, here's my play on words. To chasten Israel and to chase them back to God. And it worked. But the Babylonians meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God does that sort of thing in our life as well. Now, before we look very briefly at this chapter in Next week, Lord willing, we'll see how God mentions other nations. Very important lesson here in the Bible. God holds nations accountable, not just individuals. He holds groups accountable. Marriages, families, churches, schools, businesses, and especially governments, like the government of Babylon. And then also the leaders in the family, the father, in the church, the pastor and elders, teachers in the schools, employers at work and in government, God really holds the politicians accountable. Now that would include both elected and appointed ones. Can I get on a soapbox? Somebody say amen. I don't want to be within five miles of Harry Blackman at Judgment Day. Who's Harry Blackman? 
He was that evil justice of the United States Supreme Court that wrote the important decision legalizing abortion in 1973. He died years later. Imagine him standing before God and God says, you were the key vote that legalized the slaughter of millions of babies. You! But think about other politicians. Even ones that are relatively good have made major mistakes. So God holds the politicians, but also everybody in government and people that vote them into office. God takes this seriously. Now, God had blessed Israel as a special nation. Um, he gave them the law, for example. In Romans, it says, is God finished with Israel? By no means. He's given them the prophets, the law, the Messiah, and great promises. But unfortunately, by the time of Jesus, Israel thought, well, it's just us, and God doesn't have anything to do with those pagan nations. Go get them and punish them, God. No. God has not only held other nations accountable, he has blessed other nations. For example, in common grace, with uh, art, beauty, music, certain amount of freedom and blessing through crops and weather. But um, he blessed them, but not quite in the same way as Israel. Now let me mention a few examples in history. Um, the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. They were conquered in turn by the Persians and the Medes, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. Who conquered the Romans? The barbarians. And then who came in after that? The Byzantine Empire. The Greeks again, and then the Ottoman Empire. So these empires rise and fall. But after the Roman Empire fell, there was peace for the Christians. It was legal to be a Christian. And so they, they were blessed through this pagan nation that claimed to be Christian. Ah, but then another kind of government came in. What took the place? This is kind of a trick question. What took the place of the Roman Empire? Wasn't the barbarians, you know, the Goths, the Visigoths. It was the Roman Catholic Church. You see, society abhors a governmental vacuum, so when the Roman Empire fell, Roman Catholicism ruled Europe. And of course, then there's this so-called Holy Roman Empire, which was not holy, it was not Roman, and it wasn't an empire, but there was peace for Christians, but at the expense of the gospel. And then God sent the Reformation, and again, great blessings upon all nations in Europe, Germany, the Swiss, the Netherlands, England, Scotland, and then later, America. And so these nations, though they're not perfect, and they're not like Israel being a special nation, they were greatly blessed. And beginning of the 20th century, do you know about the great Korean revival in South Korea where God blew upon that nation and many people got saved and that's why there are a lot of godly Christians in South Korea. Of course it was one nation and then divided in the Korean War. And then China. It was pretty much pagan with just a few Christians and then Mao Zedong and the communists took over but God's way is not our ways. Christianity has grown enormously in the underground church in China. Did you know that? There are probably more true Christians in China than there are in the United States and probably all of Europe combined, and it's growing. It's also beginning to grow in India. China and India not only thriving economically, there's God's blessings, but Christianity is beginning to grow and then other places as well. So um, 
the history of the world is the history of the rise and fall of empires and great nations, and some more godly than others, and they get punished by God, and then other ones are blessed by God. That's, interpret that as you read history. Uh, history is, a, is the history of the rise and fall of empires and nations. For example, 300 years ago, Edward Gibbon over in England wrote a massive three-volume work, um, uh, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And then uh, a Jewish writer named Shirer in the 1930s was a um, journalist in Nazi Germany. And then he got out and wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Probably the definitive book on the, the fall of Nazi Germany written by a Jewish journalist. Fascinating reading. My point is empires come and go. What, what's that song about turn your eyes on Jesus? You know, look fall on him and Everything else will fade away. The nations will rise and fall, but not the kingdom of God. Now, it goes on to say Babylon had this great army and they boasted, you know, they can conquer tiny little Israel. Well, they did, but only because God let them. But notice God is basically saying, not yet. He's, he's saying, wait. So he protected them when they moved on southern Israel, but later he let them come in. And God is saying, your army is greater than Israel, but my army is greater than yours. And he mentions the Lord of hosts. Hosts there refers to the angelic armies of heaven. And they can conquer any nation on earth. Verses 6 and 9, look at that term again. It occurs amongst the prophets, the day of the Lord. Now sometimes that phrase refers to a specific day. The day of judgment on a nation like Babylon, Assyria, even Israel. And there have been various days of the Lord, and the culmination is the ultimate day of the Lord at the second coming of Jesus. But sometimes the day of the Lord is a time of revival. And yet, it, God isn't just dealing with Israel and Babylon and Assyria and those later empires. Look at verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil. God holds all nations and all individuals Accountable, not just Israel. But unlike Israel, the world at large will be wicked up until the second coming. Yes, there will be periodic blessings, revivals, but when Jesus comes, all the nations of the world will fight against him at the Battle of Armageddon, unlike Israel that will return to the Lord before the second coming. God predicts something else, verse 13. I will shake the heavens, says that over in Habakkuk. Not only shake the earth, but I'm going to shake the heavens. The earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, hosts in the day of his fierce anger, the day of the Lord. Shaking of the heavens and the earth. I take this literally. Sometimes people look at this only figuratively, but God did shake the heavens and the earth. Uh, sent earthquakes. Do a study on the earthquakes of the Bible. There was an earthquake when Jesus died. Earthquake in, was it Acts 16? It ended up a pagan Roman getting saved. God sends earthquakes. But this is predicting a great cosmic catastrophe. What was the great, okay, someone shout out, what was the greatest cosmic or uh, natural catastrophe that God sent in the Old Testament? The flood. And that's referred to in 2 Peter chapter 3, and that was predicting or foreshadowing greater cosmic catastrophes. And a lot of that's going to happen in the Great Tribulation. 
But then Peter says the first one was by water worldwide. Only eight people survived. But the next one, the flood that's coming is a flood of fire. It's going to be worldwide. And very few people survive. <coughs> Excuse me. Only eight survived the flood of water. Christians survived the flood of fire because they're taken out right before the second coming. And that worldwide flood of fire is called the great conflagration. Anybody ever heard that term? Okay. Um, it's, it's a good term. It means the great fire. At the second coming, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, God, Jesus returns with flaming fire. Worldwide decimates the whole world. Think about that. Just like Noah's flood, Noah looked out the ark and saw dead bodies everywhere, floating. Second coming, Christians come back to earth with Jesus and they'll look all over the world and they'll just see charred bodies. You can't fight against God and win. Now I'm pouring out something else in verse 17. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver and gold and so forth. Who are the Medes? The Medes were the neighbors of the Persians, and together they've put together the Medo-Persian Empire. But the Persians were more well-known, more advanced, and bigger, so it's usually called the Persian Empire. Uh, okay, class, pop quiz, what would we call Persia today? What nation? Iran, where our wise men from the east came. By the way, where did the wise men come that followed the star to Bethlehem? They came from Persia. How do I know that? Because it says they were Magi. Magi was a specific group of people in Persia. They're mentioned in the book of Daniel. These wise men, magicians, and so forth. And you'd identify them because they, said, well, they were the Magi. It's like if you were to go over to, let's say, England and say, well, where do the Yankees live? They said, well, that's America, United States. Yes, but you go down to Dixie, where I grew up, and you say, where the Yankees live? They say, not here, up north. Then you go up north, let's say over to New York, New York, and say, where the Yankees live? And they say, well, they live at Yankee Stadium over in the Bronx. So in other words, the term can be used in various ways. And so the Medo-Persian Empire, that's where the Magi came from, from Persia and specifically their capital. But the Medo-Persian Empire was an alliance, kind of like in World War II. You had the allies on one side and the Axis on the other. These were allied together, Medo-Persian, kind of like twin cities of Minneapolis-St. Paul. Interesting, Daniel had been in both Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire. And God protected him and he prophesied and got visions back then. By the way, it also mentions in this section here the Chaldeans. Um, verse 19, Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans. Is that another nation? No, that's another name for the Babylonians. Just like you talk about the United States or you talk about America, you talk about the United Kingdom or Great Britain. It's different names for the same thing, the Chaldeans. Verse 19, Babylon would overthrow Assyria as God had overthrown the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's going to happen at the great conflagration where God's going to judge the whole world with fire like he did Sodom and Gomorrah, but Babylon would be God's means 
to overthrow Assyria, and then the Medo-Persians overthrow Babylon. It's like a whole bunch of dominoes get us set up, and God's the one that pushes it, and he knows what's going to knock over the other ones. Lastly, uh, verses 20 to 22, the city of Babylon would be decimated when God is finished with it, and it's the city, not the country, and it would be desolate. Said no one's ever going to live there except these wild animals. Notice it says ostriches, wild goats, hyenas will howl in the middle of the night and jackals. That's like a desert and it's not being rebuilt. And that happened. Unfortunately, some self-appointed prophecy experts think, no, 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 it's been rebuilt. Uh, a few of us on this side of the oratorium might remember during the Persian Gulf War and you remember the war with Iraq. And a lot of the prophecy experts said, this is a fulfillment of the rise of Babylon. And one of their ex so-called experts wrote a book called The Rise of Babylon and said the Babylonian Empire has risen up again. It's the third greatest empire and army in the world. And the implication was, this is it. This is the second coming. This is the last prophecy to be fulfilled. Babylon has been rebuilt. No, he forgot the Bible says Babylon is not going to be rebuilt. Not the city. The country did rebuild, but not. there is no Babylon today. Get out your little GPX and you're not going to find it. It's just a wasteland there, as God had said. Okay, let's look at chapter 14. Very interesting. It says, the Lord, verse 1, will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel. Remember, Jacob and Israel talking about the same people because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. But notice he says he's going to have mercy on them as he punishes the enemies. Now, that's an important principle. God's wrath on Babylon is mercy to Israel. That's going to happen at the second coming. It's going to be mercy to us when God punishes his enemies and our enemies, I guess a human analogy would be radiation on a tumor can be mercy to the patient, but it's not mercy on that tumor. It kills those cells. And it's the same thing with us. God will judge our enemies, and that'll be mercy for us. You find after God sends all that worldwide fire at the second coming, the Christians and the angels rejoice because it's mercy to God's people when he judges. Okay, what happened at the Red Sea when Moses led them through? God judged and drowned all the Egyptian enemies and the Jews. They didn't say, let's have five minutes of silence in honor of Pharaoh. No, it says they danced and sang. They saw that God's wrath on God's people's, God's enemies is mercy to God's people. It causes rejoicing. But notice the phrase next. It says, God will still choose Israel. He didn't forsake them. I read where Jonathan Edwards commented on this. And he said, notice God's choice of Israel as a nation, not forsaking them, is a type of God choosing the elect to be saved, whether the Jew or Gentile. And he said, God chose Israel. He still chose them. He'll continue to choose them. And he says, God chooses the elect. And he still chooses them every day. And he will always choose them. As if to say, you're mine. I've got your past, present, and future. You're elect, once elect, always elect. 
Is Israel still a chosen nation or has it been forfeited? Yes and no. Their chosenness is somewhat conditional and they're not keeping the conditions today. We should pray for them in this war that's going on in Gaza. But very few Jews over there believe Jesus is the Messiah. So God is still dealing with them in these tough times. But he has not forfeited them and annulled their chosen stature. There's still blessings coming for them according to Romans 11. When they return and how do they keep the covenant in a true way? Not by going back to the laws of Moses and circumcision and sacrifices, which dispensationalists would say, but by believing Jesus was their Messiah and opens the floodgates of much blessings. But as I said, many Jews today would say, well, God chose us as a special nation, and they may be polite to the Gentiles, but they forget the promise given to Abraham, the father of the Jews, that God would use the Jews to bless the Gentiles. Well, they didn't do that much in the Old Covenant. But here's God's unusual ways. He blesses the Gentiles by getting a Jewish Messiah that the Gentiles will believe in, and the Jews and Gentiles form the church. By the way, that's indicated in verse 1. The strangers will be joined with them. Well, what strangers? That's a Jewish word for saying the Gentiles, the strangers to the covenant. God says only temporarily. They're going to be joined with the Jews and they will cling to the house of Jacob. They don't become Jews, but Jews and Gentiles become Christians. Then he promises rest in verse 3. Come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and their hard bondage into which you were made to serve. God says, I'm going to give you rest one day. But it'd be temporary peace and rest, and then another nation will come in. So poor Israel, over the last, what, 4,000 years, peace, tribulation, peace, tribulation. God says, one day, there'll be perfect peace. And the perfect peace is not here on earth. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. Right? You know, the angels said, no peace on earth. We talk about spiritual peace, right with God. The ultimate peace is in heaven. No more warfare, no more enemies. The great Richard Baxter, a Puritan, wrote a massive book about that big called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. It's all about heaven. And there'll be ultimately peace at last. Brethren, take courage in that. You maybe go through a tribulation, tough times, it's only temporary. Peace is coming when the Prince of Peace returns, or if you die before then, you go to heaven, the land of perfect peace and joy. Verse 4, God now is not only predicting the downfall of Babylon, but boasting. You know, you thought you were so great. The bigger they come, the harder they fall. And uh, God is taunting them, and we find that in this chapter you know, God is righteous and he, and he has a way of having a holy taunt of his enemies when he overthrows them. Just look that up in Psalm 2 and several other places where it says, why the nations gather against your anointed? That's the Messiah. And it says, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh at them, taunting them. You thought you were so great. Babylon, you thought you were the greatest. I just knocked you over with my little finger. And in Isaiah's time, that was unimaginable that either Assyria or Babylon would fall. Well, what's that political phrase? It's, they're too big to fail. So the government comes to their rescue. And so people think, oh, 
these great empires. They thought that with the Persian Empire, the, the Greek Empire, the, certainly with the Romans, all the rest of them, but they all came tumbling down like uh, Joshua's wall. That's going to happen one day. I'm not a prophet. I'm, one of these, I'm not one of these prophecy experts, but what's the most powerful nation on earth right now? United States of America. Biggest economy, strongest military. I mean, we defeated the Nazis, the communists, etc. God's going to bring us down too. Too big to fail? God just has, has to blow and we're going to fall down like a house of cards. It's very likely to happen, but it'll happen to all the nations of the world at Armageddon. Skip down to verse 9 next. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. Here's where God's saying you're going to really get it. It stirs up the dead for you and all the chief ones of the earth is raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations, and so on. So God says, I'm only going to bring you down. I'm going to bring you down to hell. And the most common word in Hebrew in the Old Testament for hell is Sheol. That's usually translated in Greek as Hades. Uh, Sheol and Hades is hell as it is now, awaiting the worst hell, which is called Gehenna, the lake of fire. And so when a lost person dies, he goes to Sheol in this torment. He's in fire, though he's not in his body. And God says, I'm going to do that to the Babylonians. Whether any, it doesn't seem to be any of them are going to get saved. And um, this is predicting the Old and the New Testament. So the God's threat to Babylon is you're going to fall and your evil sinners are all going to go down to their graves and then through the grave into hell. And the angels are going to rejoice and God's going to taunt you. That's, a, that's strong language. But that's the same threat that's repeated throughout the Bible, not just against Babylonians, but lost sinners that do not repent. God not only pleads with lost sinners, he threatens them, not just warns them, he threatens them. And not idle threats. They would be very wise to heed God's threats without laughing. And so it says here, that's strong language. Hell from beneath is excited to you to meet you as you're coming. The verse like that elsewhere in the Old Testament says, a hell has opened its mouth like a gaping animal, like a, like a shark. You ever see a shark with its mouth and those sharp teeth? Gaping to swallow someone, like that old movie Jaws. Hell is like that. It's opened up just waiting. The fire is already waiting and people are already there. It's opened up to welcome other sinners, to torment them. Not like there's a party. It says the people in hell are welcoming people there because misery loves company. Not they're going to have a party, but they're going to be each other's tormentors. It's worse than we can imagine. In verse 10, those in hell welcome those other sinners. In verse 11, earthy, it says you go into the grave. What happens to a body that's in the grave? It might be cremated, it might be embalmed, but eventually what happens, not only does it turn to dust, it deteriorates, and look at the verse, it's eaten by maggots and worms. It's gross. Jonathan Edwards said, that those maggots and worms, whether it's literal or not, that does happen literally, but it's also a type of the maggot-like demons that feed upon the souls of those that are in hell. Well, that's strong language. But the Bible is very earthy. Now, let's look at this unusual section 
12 to 17. Verse 12, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, and so forth. Now, Lucifer is, uh, the name comes from the Latin, uh, Lucifer, Luciferius, which means light bearer, and it comes from the Hebrew, means the light bearer, the dawn, the day star. Someone said this is an imitation, a counterfeit of Jesus, who is the bright morning star, according to Revelation 22. Who's this talking about? The scholars are divided amongst three options. Maybe you've heard them. The first one is, well, this is already talking about the king of Babylon. Because that's what it's talking about. Your pomp is bring, brought down to Sheol as the nation is brought down, the leader is brought down, and so it's the king of Babylon. Secondly, very popular interpretation, going back to Tertullian about the year 175, is that this is a prophecy of the fall of not a human king, but of Satan, and that's why he's been called Lucifer. And the third option, it says, well, it's a little bit of both. It's predicting the fall of that evil king, such as Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, but that's also a type of Satan. And they also said when the book of Daniel talks about the evil demons involved in various nations, it says one is the prince of Persia. And so they say behind Babylon there was the devil, Lucifer himself. And he's worse than any human dictator. And he, his worldwide kingdom is greater than Babylon. And God here is saying, you are fallen from heaven. Now, no mere, this is a clue. Logan, a key exegetical indicator. No king fell from heaven. No king of Babylon was ever in heaven and got kicked out, but Lucifer was. The usual interpretation amongst evangelicals, not all, but most, is that Satan was created a good angel, not a bad angel, not a demon. He was created as a high angel that's called an archangel. We'll look at another verse on that. Arch means highest, like an archbishop is a high-ranking bishop. And there are only two archangels. Michael and Satan are equal. And at one time, they were both very good and holy. They were involved in worship and in music. But then the one called Lucifer became very proud and jealous of God. And he wanted to be a God. And that's why it says here, you are cut down to the ground because you boasted. I'm going to, uh, verse uh, 13, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God and I'm going I'm to be the next God. He would have kicked God off the throne and kicked him out of heaven. But God said, you can't kick me out of here. And so Lucifer was thrown out. I follow the interpretation of many evangelicals that Revelation 12 is looking back on that and said that, the, you know, a tail swung and all, uh, all these stars were kicked out of this cosmos and came to earth. And that's probably talking about angels that fell with Satan and one third of them. So it wasn't just Satan, but probably a third of the good angels said, we're going to follow Lucifer. And God said, you want to follow him? Then you go out of heaven as well. What happened to them? They came to earth. That's probably indicated in Genesis 6, that unusual incident. But some were still on earth and some were already down in hell, locked up in chains, as it says in Second Peter, Jude, and a couple of other places. But they were all thrown out. 
Why? Because mainly because of Satan's evil rebellion. 1 Timothy 3.6 warns about the pride of the devil. 2 Peter 2.4, Jude 6, Luke 10.18 and other verses are indicating that Satan was thrown out of heaven to earth. And the Revelation predicts the day when he'll be thrown out of earth into hell. That's his doom, or as we sing in Mighty Fortresses Are God, his doom is sure. And the demons, same thing. Not a single one of them will ever be saved. Think about that. The good angels have been preserved. They never sinned. The bad angels all sinned. Not a single one of them is elect. Not a single one will end up in heaven. I tell you, they don't like what I'm preaching tonight. They know their doom. And they tremble, the Bible says, to think about that. They'll all end up in hell like the Babylonians. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, talking about the judgment day, he said that he as judge will say to lost sinners, depart from me into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You could also throw in the Babylonians and the Nazis and all unbelievers that don't repent. Revelation 20, 10 says all of them end up in the lake of fire and be tormented forever. Endeavor. Now, I mentioned that there's another place in the Bible that is similar to this, so let's briefly read it, Ezekiel 28. Now, Ezekiel is a couple of books ahead, so you go from Isaiah to Jeremiah, a little book, Lamentations, and Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel 28, and I'm just going to read it with almost no comment for time's sake. Ezekiel 28, starting at verse 12. And you notice the similarities. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. That was just north of Israel. Jesus mentioned it in Matthew 11. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Now, Eden would be located like uh, close to Kuwait or southern Iraq today. But Tyre, he was never in Eden. Certainly wasn't in the Garden of Eden. It says the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, Topaz, mentions all these precious stones. Workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. In other words, there was music. This was before the fall. It was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub. That's another word for an angel who covers. I establish you on the holy mountain of God. This doesn't sound like a mere man. You walk back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. These gems everywhere. You were perfect in your ways from the days you were created. That certainly wasn't the king of Tyre. Till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence and so forth. But I cast you out, out of the mountain of God. Heaven's called the mountain of God. I destroyed you, you covering cherub. Your heart was lifted up, like it says in Isaiah, because of your beauty. Angels are beautiful. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I will cast you to the ground. I'll throw you out of heaven, throw you to earth. I laid you before kings that they might gaze on you. You defiled your sanctuaries multitude of your iniquities, and so forth. I brought fire from you, from your midst, and it devoured you. In other words, I overthrew you. You were astonished among the peoples. Verse 19, you became a horror. In other words, this is parallel to Isaiah 14. And again, the scholars are divided amongst those three options. And I think that of these two places... I go for saying it did have the literal fulfillment with the king of Babylon, the king of Tyre, but that's also a type of the overthrow of the evil force behind those empires, which was Satan. And so God attributes certain things 
to this Lucifer angel that could not be attributed to a mere man, and that's ultimately fulfilled in the downfall of Satan. Okay, back to Isaiah 14. God, uh, here's the irony. Satan was not satisfied with serving God. He wanted to be like God. He was already with Michael, the highest of all the angels. What more could he want? Highly exalted. It wasn't enough. Wanted to be like God. He was not satisfied with serving God. I guess I have to allude to a famous line in the original Star Trek TV show. You remember the one, The Wrath of Khan, later made into a movie? And uh, toward the end of the movie, when Khan was about to be exiled, um, he said to Captain Kirk, he says, Do you know your John Milton? The poet laureate of England in the uh, 1600s. He says, Yes, I understand. And then off he goes to this desolate planet. And then I think it was McCoy said, What's this about Milton? He said, well, haven't you ever read Paradise Lost? Lucifer was cast out because he said, better to serve in hell, uh, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. That's not quite true about what Satan thought. He did want to serve in heaven, but does he reign in hell? No, God reigns even in hell, but he uses the devil even in hell. Notice five times he says, I will do this. I will send to heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will. It was not saying not my will, but thy will. He didn't say that. He said my will, not thy will. That's the essence of sin. Opposition to God wanting to be our own God, and we're imitating the devil. Like the person that says, I'm the captain of my ship and the master of my fate. Nobody tells me what to do. You're imitating the devil. You imitate the devil, you'll go to the devil's hell with him to be tormented by God. Then look at verse 15. You shall be brought down to Sheol, that's hell, to the lowest depths of the pit. Pit is mentioned in Revelation, another term for the pit of hell. Like Babylon, so with Satan, and gone to the lowest part. You know, there are degrees of punishment in hell, just like degrees of reward in heaven. And where are the lowest parts that are punished the most? The demons, because they're older, they know more, they've sinned more, they knew more. Amongst humans, there would be hypocrites, false preachers, false prophets. And of course, of all human beings, the one that occupies the lowest part is Judas. And amongst the demonic forces, the one to be punished in the lowest part will be Satan. It's predicted right here. But then it'll be followed by all those lost sinners that are dancing merrily on their way to hell. And then it says, onlookers will look and taunt them like, this is the great one? What happened to him? And that's foreshadowing when Satan is thrown into hell, the angels will say, this is the one that thought he ruled the world is going to overthrow God. And they taunt them. Taunt the devil as he's thrown into hell. You know, that's the worst fear of the dictators in the world is that they will be overthrown and their enemies will torture them and taunt them. I've done a good bit of reading on World War II like William Shirer's book. Did you know what Adolf Hitler's worst fear was? that his empire would fall, the Russians would capture him, and I'll spare the details, but he said 
he said this to Eva Brown, his mistress, and to some of his inner circles. He said, I fear that when they conquer me, they're going to strip me naked and put me in a, in a cage so people can buy, come by and laugh at me and throw things at me. He feared that, and so when the Russians came in, he committed suicide unless he would fall into their hands. Well, the devil's like this. He says, I don't want to be taunted. I certainly don't want to be punished, but he will be. Psalm 2, God will laugh at all workers of iniquity and laugh at the devil and those that go to hell with the devil. Verses 18 and following, the Babylonians would be doomed to die and be damned and go to hell. Did God ever offer them salvation? Well, God sent Jonah to Assyria, Daniel. There was some offer to the Babylonians and Persians, but very few listened. But it'd be worldwide again, verse 22, not just the Medo-Persians and not just them defeating the Babylonians, but ultimately it's God. I don't think William Shira mentioned this and certainly not Edward Gibbon, who was a skeptic. The rise and fall of empires is because it's God that brings them down. He raises them up, he brings them down. And we need to give him the praise for that. Verse 24 is interesting how it's phrased. The Lord of hosts has sworn. Now God always tells the truth, but there's a few instances in the Bible where it says God swore. Uh, Hebrews 6, God because he could swear by no other, swore by himself. And so God swore, and so it's like when he repeats it, you better set up and listen to his threats and his promises. When he takes an oath like this as if saying, I'm not going to change my mind. I swore, I could, I'm the only one that could reverse it, and I won't. It's irreversible. So he's threatening and promising there will be damnation in advance for the Babylonians, and we know ultimately for lost sinners. Some of God's threats are conditional, like the threats that uh, Jonah issued, 40 days and then they will be overthrown. We know it's conditional because they repented and so judgment was delayed. But other threats are unconditional, like you find in Jeremiah saying, Israel, repent all you want to. God's still going to punish you unconditionally. The ultimate unconditional promises of God are his decrees. Back in eternity, they're all unconditional. And he's invincible. Look at verse lost my place. Verse 27, the Lord of hosts is purposed. Who will annul it? The Jewish way of saying, ah, nobody can. His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? You find that also in the book of Daniel. So God's unconditional threats, his conditional threats that are not heeded in his ultimate decrees will all come to pass. God is invincible. What does that mean? God wins. Never loses. Verse 25, Assyria first, and then the dominoes, Babylon and others later, and then ultimately the whole world. And then a side note, verse 28, King Ahaz died. And the nation worried, just like earlier in chapter 6, Uzziah died, and the nation said, what's going to happen to us? Babylonians are going to take advantage of this. Just like, was it April 27th, 1945? Franklin Roosevelt, the president, died and Hitler said, hey, that's an omen. We're going to win. Well, no, they misinterpreted it. But people worried, what's going to happen to us? President Kennedy was assassinated. What's going to happen? He kept the communists away. Israel worried, but so God repeats, no, I'm going to protect you from your evil ones. 
And then the chapter ends, and our study tonight ends, uh, verses 29 to 31, the threat to Philistia, the Philistines. Where were they? Uh, Gaza, where a lot of the war is being fought today. I'd remind you, though, that Palestinians are not descendants of the Philistines. The name sounds the same, just like Palestine. No, the Philistines uh, were separate. The Palestinians are descended from the Arabs. In conclusion, God promised and threatened Babylon will be thrown, overthrown, punished. But later in the Bible, he predicts another Babylon would arise. Not this nation like Charlie Dyer with his book, The Rise of Babylon. He's coming, he's coming. This is the last days. No, no, no. Bible predicts mystery Babylon, and that's been interpreted in various ways, but it's not just talking about a resurrected nation of Babylon, such as Iraq, but mystery, the, the demonic forces worldwide that is like ancient, ancient Babylon, persecuting God's people and evil, and Satan is its leader in the form of Antichrist. But God predicts there, and look that up, Babylon has fallen and has fallen, and there's rejoicing in heaven, with the ultimate Babylon being, being overthrown, including Satan, including the Antichrist. Revelation 20, verse 10, they'll both be thrown to the lake of fire. But yet, and here's where we end on a good note. Just like God promised to protect Israel, God says, I'm going to protect my people. Oh yes, they'll be martyrs. But ultimately, God wins. And we win because we're on his side. We can't lose if we're his people. But another lesson, very serious, is if we're not his people, we can't win. Let's pray. Father, teach us the lessons of Isaiah 12 to 14 about how you have dealt with whole nations such as Babylon and then Third Reich and possibly America. We plead for mercy. We pray for our country. And thank you that you will protect your people as you did Israel. And we're on our way to the land of glory and ultimate peace. You will win. In Jesus' name, amen.